counter. You got the red box. That's the fire alarm that's been there for years. Right next to it is a white small box, uh, and you just you that's where you re you disable the alarm. There's motion detectors in the buildings. Uh, various locations, there's the door sensors if the door is open uh, inadvertently. And so, um, but that will be, so that door, the, the, the door that everybody always goes in, which is the, the left double set, and then the door by the kitchen will have a swiping thing to get you in. Um, but when it comes to cleaning, you know, I'll try to, those things are easier to control because we can always disable them or make them only available certain times of the week or whatever. I don't know what all they can do with the with the settings on those on those things. But anyway, that's Randy, yes, sir. Will this room be this room be rekeyed? Uh, I believe this room will be rekeyed, and uh, the keypad that you have to reset or turn off the alarm is actually located in the. Uh, the other classroom over here, the craft room. When you walk in the door, when, right when you first walk in, there's a shelf right right next to your, your left arm. You walk in, and it's on that shelf. I don't really like it there, but that's where they put it. I would prefer to be straight across the hallway from the door, but that's not where they put it. Um, we might be able to get them to move it later on. Uh, so anyway, that's that. That's about the cleaning. Um, Judy Steele is getting better, but we still want to pray for her. I mean, we've seen her here, not in class, but I've seen her, I think she was here church last week. So I want to pray for her. Pray for Terry Wilson. She has surgery on August 1st. Um, and then, uh, so not only is your birthday, but you, you, you've apparently been a little, a little under the weather, so hopefully this will lift you up. Yeah. So, so pray for Annabeth. Um, and then uh, just to mention that the registration for D2 is... Uh, anybody's interested in taking D2 uh, that uh, starts November or September 7th and then HBI starts August 14th anybody we have three new students signing up so we have other people that are signing up that can sign up if they want and so uh, I, I had a bulletin they handed it to me when I was in the lobby but I don't know what I did with it uh, but there's other information in there that you can look at keep track of let's turn over to the book of uh, first uh, the Gospel of John um, last week I was talking about where I would recommend people to read. It just kind of made me think, well, we should go back back to the Gospel of John and let's read John for prayer. And as you as you may or may not recall, you know, we've been doing this for a long time where we kind of take turns praying. I read a passage of Scripture. We use the verses there as something that, as a, what I would call a prayer point. Each verse is a point of prayer. I think a lot of people have a prayer list, you know, where you remember things that you want to pray for. These verses are that list for the class. I'll pray. I'll stop. Somebody else is welcome to pray. And we'll just let go around the room as many who want to pray. And then when it seems like nobody else is wanting to pray, uh, I'll close in prayer. And then we'll get in started in the lesson. And so uh, so let's, let's read the Gospel of John starting in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 18. It's a little, a little long passage, but it's all consistent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He is he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him to him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was him whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And, and of this, of this, of his fullness, have we all received in grace for grace. For the law hath, was given to Moses, or by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of Him, which is of the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture as a reminder of just uh, the, the significance of Your Son Jesus Christ. And in the beginning, Lord, everything you was everything that was established, you were created, that were by you, uh, ordained by you, uh, completed by you, and we thank you for that. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, that we have the ability to be uh, to be to receive the power to become your son, uh, Lord, through through the gift of eternal life and salvation by believing on your name. We praise you for that, and we just ask now, Lord, that you would help us that we could. Communicate, even as John the Baptist desired to to proclaim this light in a dark world, and we ask Father for your assistance and your help and your guidance, Lord, that we might be spokesmen for for you through, as the same way John the Baptist was. We be a spokesman for you that we can declare your light in this world, and we just thank you and praise you for it all.
Father in heaven, as we conclude in prayer and prepare for the message, Lord, the lesson that you've given to us, we ask, Father, for your your uh, wisdom to be um, in us and help us to, to apply the scripture in our lives, Lord, that we might be reflect exactly who you want us to be and to reflect who you are as well. We, we do pray, Father. We thank you for answered prayer, and we thank you for many things that you do in our lives that, that we don't even sometimes recognize that your hand is moving in our life. We thank you for those times. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to, re- to recognize when you do move in our life so that we can give honor and glory to where it rightfully belongs. And we just pray for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to mention, everybody, a lot of people have been asking for a long time because it's been announced, but the cutter, the Bible trimmer, um, I think it's working now. I think it's fixed. Um, I put a new part in it yesterday, but we have come from Wednesday and yesterday. We probably cut 15, 1600 Bibles. Uh, four pallets have already been shipped. Uh, they're gone. We've opened up the fourth base, but it, uh, it's just running. I mean, it's just run. It, I'm so thankful. And it's, I don't know, did we, did we wear Bob out yesterday? Well, I really appreciate him and David both helping with the cutter, just keeping it, not keeping it, keeping the work flowing. And Bob Klein for helping troubleshoot the problem, but and others. I mean, we've we've had all kinds of we have mechanical, electrical, hydraulic, uh, pneumatic problems, all kinds of things, and it would just stop running. And he was like, well, okay, what do, what do we do now? And and uh, now it's just working, and it's all because of your prayer. Uh, but I will say. I'm a little apprehensive. Not that I don't trust God or anything, but I am apprehensive about the machine because it is a machine, and it's old, and uh, it's it's end of life, and you know eventually we're going to have to replace it. So we're looking for opportunities for that. So you know, pray pray that God would sell a few cattle and give us the money, and uh, help us acquire another cutter and maybe even a binder, a new binder as well. So. Uh, we're we're really running on borrowed time every every time we do something like this because the machines they're old they break you know and trying to get parts it's like well let me see if I can find it on internet someplace and that's, we have to search for parts like that anymore so thank you for your prayers on that thank you for the work that's been done and we're, we're we're making a lot of progress but we still have just in in the armory right now we probably have six or seven thousand Bibles that need to be handled in box, eventually get box, bind them up and all that stuff. Okay, so that's, that's what I, was, that's what I was praying, I was thinking, I didn't even let you guys know that. So, uh, I'm just going to start with Romans chapter 6. This is, we're, we're in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12, but I want to read verse 6, uh, or Romans chapter 6, verse 4 real quick, because it kind of ties together. But Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said in verse in Romans 6, 4, which I think is in your notes, so therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead. I mean, we talked about Christ being raised up. You know, he died three days later, he was raised up. But then not only did he just raise up from dead, he ascended uh, into heaven a few days later in the book of Acts chapter 1. Anyway, so he was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. God raised himself up. It's an incredibly amazing miracle that he did that. But that's what we have to look forward to because Paul goes on and he says, even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. And the concept that Paul is talking about, about being raised up, he actually said that in Colossians chapter 1, 
I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Um, let me get my Bible turned over there. If you recall, Paul said in chapter 3, verse 1, um, is the right place? He said, If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. So Paul is saying, If you've been risen, and not everybody has been risen or will be risen, there are people in the world today uh, that uh, do not share in the hope of glory that you and I have. That hope of glory for all of us is that we are going to resurrect. We are going to rise up either, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, either we're going to rise up out of the grave and, and meet, meet Christ in the air, and along with every other believer, or we're going to let them go first and then we'll follow behind them. But we are going to be raised up. And uh, that's a glorious thing to happen for us. So anyway, so Paul writes about this concept of being raised up. And he spoke about it in the first half of chapter 3 as he explained all that being raised up means. And so that's kind of, we, we, we're not going to go back and through all of that and look at that again, but that's as a reminder where we're coming from in this this part of the, this next part of the chapter. And so he followed all of that by bringing us back to our current condition. And that's what chapter 3 really starting in verse 5 is about. And all the way down, we're going to go, we're going to go back to verse 12 again today. And then move down to verse 16. That's kind of so we're going to re-look re at a few things because there's so much in here. This is an incredibly powerful letter for being so short. It's an amazing letter how short it is, but how powerful it is because there's so much said. I mean, almost every word you have to you have to parse every verse to figure out what okay, not figure out what he's saying, but capture everything that Paul is talking about. And when you just read through it, a lot of that stuff gets overlooked. And so we're going to go back. But anyway, Paul counseled us, you and me in the church at Corinth, or Colossia, he counseled us to put off the old and put on the new. And to that end, Paul gave the church some very specific ways to walk in the newness of life. And that's what we started looking at last week. I entitled, if you recall, I entitled last week's message, what will you wear? So this message is what will you do? So there's there's both within this whole passage of chapter 3. And so the intent of Paul's message is to teach us what a true believer should look like. What a believer should actually look like. That's what put on, put off. Put off the old man, put on the new. Uh, and so our, our actions no longer look like the old man, or they shouldn't. They're replaced with that new man who was ordained with forgiveness, love, and perfectness, or perfectness, and we talked about all of that. And so each step Paul was talking about was an act of reminding the flesh of just who's in control. Because sometimes we have to back ourselves up and say, hey, flesh, you're not in charge anymore. Back off. God's got this. God has got my life. And flesh, you don't get my life anymore. And so kind of what Paul was telling us how to do. The next part of the passage, starting in verse 15, where we're going to be and really going all the way into the first few verses of chapter 4, which we're not going to get to today, uh, Paul addresses very specific behaviors which guide us in our role in living while dressed in that new man. So there's really going to be a part 2, maybe even a part 3 to this part about what will you do with what you're wearing. That's kind of the link. What do we do with what you're wearing? Um, so starting in verse 12, let's just look at verse 12. We'll, I'll read verse 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 3 in Colossians. 
Paul says, put on thee therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness, meek of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, uh, last week, as I was looking, we, we went through two lists in the, first, in the earlier part of this chapter. And I said, when we got to this, I was reading, I said, well, that's the third list. I should have expanded on that. Well, that's basically what I'm doing today, is expanding on that third list. So anyway, the look of the new man that Paul painted for us and is to put on some of the specific characteristics that we need to unwrap in order to prepare ourselves for what we were supposed to be doing. So in verse one, verse 12, the first part of verse 12, I want to address that statement that Paul writes there. He says, uh, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. That's a, that's a, a charged word, the word elect, especially in the environment that we're in today because we've, we're always thinking about elections. You get, I don't know how many commercials in the, in, the, in the day you see about somebody running for some office someplace, and most of the people, I don't know who they are. I don't know who, I don't you know, it's really frustrating being on a, right on the border state because I don't know, is, is that a Missouri or is that a Kansas representative, uh, candidate? I don't know. I have to dig it up and look at it, and I don't have time for that. So I don't know. I'll just I'll just see the commercial again the next day. But anyway, the election is kind of in your mind, right? It's there. And the idea of you being the elect of God, it does some things that we need to clarify. Basically, this is a title of the body of Christ. That's, a, that's the first thing. That's a, that's a positive thing. Is it, it is a title of the body of Christ. Remember in verse 1 when Paul used his logic statement that I talked about, if, then... If you are, then, and so on. And so, if you're risen with Christ, that makes you unique and a part of the elect of God. If you're risen, you're part of the elect. You don't need to get voted in. You're in. And that's what, kind of what I want to talk about. So, see, the word does not mean, the word election in this passage does not mean that you won an election or that you were even nominated. So you're not running, you're not, you're not trying, to, you're not campaigning to get saved. That's not what this means. It's not the idea of campaign. Although some people want to twist it and, and manipulate it and make it that God elected you, that God voted for you, or in some cases God didn't vote for you. And so neither one of those are accurate. That's not what this is talking about. Um, the word does not mean that you're elected to be saved. Uh, it does not mean that you won an election or you were nominated. The teaching by other churches and other denominations claim that only God decides who gets saved and who will be lost. Some people teach, some churches teach, that God God chose you to be saved and you have nothing to do with it. God chose you to not be saved and you can't change that. That's not a true, that's not true doctrine. That's not what it means to be part of the elect. And um, I probably didn't do it justice today, but basically the elect are people, um, I don't know how to define that. I find my note here someplace. Okay, I can't find it in my notes. I'll get to it, I'm sure. But basically, if you're elect, that simply means that you're that God has chosen to do something special with you. Not to make you saved, but because you're part of the saved body of Christ, God intends to do something with you, with the body of Christ, with the church. He expects to do something with the church. Um, so this false teaching of other churches based on words like predestination, you probably have heard that word predestination, like in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 
And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where basically it says that you've been predestinated. You have been, it's like, what's my destiny? Well, I don't know. God figured it out. My destiny is set by God. Well, that's kind of sort of true. I mean, if you're not saved, your destiny is fixed. But you can change that. You can get out of that. You can be saved, not because God chose to save you, but because you chose God. In fact, uh, their faulty teaching ex- attempts to exclude your will and conscious and your conscious thinking. Uh, but your will and your consciousness have a part to play in, in you becoming saved. Uh, they will say that a man cannot overrule God's will. So if God doesn't want you saved, there's not a thing you can do about it. If God wants you saved, you can't deny God. You can't say, no, God, I don't want to be saved. You can't do that. You can't reject God. That's Neither one of those are accurate. If God wants you saved, you cannot reject that offer. Or if God does not want you saved, you're heaven. Then you cannot get there by your choice. That's what they will claim. So what they fail to see is what Romans chapter 10, if you have to turn, look at Romans chapter 10. I know many of you are familiar with this. This is not really unique, but it is for some people. And Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, that if thou, that means you, if thou, if you shall confess with thy mouth, your words, your speaking, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, basically you say, I accept, I believe, I confirm that Jesus is real and he is God. If, that, if that's a statement that you're willing to make, um, so if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in the, in the heart, in your heart, in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead. Okay, so two things. You've got to confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart that God hath raised. Verse 1 again. If, if, he, if you be risen with him, if he's risen, you're risen. And he goes on and says, And that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now it doesn't say anything in here that if God chooses to save you, you'll be saved. Or if God likes the things that you think, you will be saved. Or uh, you didn't, you missed the mark, so you can't be saved. That's not what the verses say. It says, if you personally confess with your mouth personally and believe in your heart personally, thou shalt be saved. It's a simple process. God's will is that everybody be saved. God's will is not that just a few people get saved. God's will is not that Baptists get saved. God's will is that everybody have the opportunity to get saved. And that's where we've come into task. If we look like the Christian we're supposed to, according to chapter 3, or the whole, the whole of chapter 3, if we look like that, we get, we're much closer to helping a person who has not confessed with their mouth believes in their heart that God is, that Jesus Christ is who he is we get just a step closer to helping a person believe that that's what this whole chapter is about you Paul wants you and me and this church and the entirety of the body of Christ to be a picture of Christ put on the new man so that people can see him that they might get saved your identity as the elect of God only means because you are saved. This is the, what I was good for in my note. Your identity as the elect of God only means that because you are saved, because you are saved, you are part of a significant role in God's plan for His kingdom. That's what the elect means. Now, there's actually five different IDs, identification in the Bible about who's elect. I didn't really put them in my notes. I didn't want to go take the time to go through them, but I'll give them to you real quick. Christ is elect. You know, we, we forget that. Christ is elect. Jews are elect. The church is elect. There's a lady in First John, or no, 
third, is it second or third John? One of those two. The elect woman, and then I can't remember the fifth one. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. But there, you got the, the, the idea. Anyway, let's go on because we're running out of time pretty quick. Um, so you are part of the church and part of the bride because you are saved. Not because God chose you to be saved, but because you chose to receive the gift of eternal life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says, Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Peter knew that you're part of the elect of God simply because the blood of Christ covered you. Okay, so verse 12, 1, the first part of verse 12, talks about the elect, but then he goes on because he's got a lot more to say about that. Or about, about the church. Put on as as it, as therefore as the elect of God. Then he begins this list. What are you supposed to put on? Starting verse twelve, the middle of verse twelve. Look, he, gets, he says, "Put on holy." Uh, put on. No, I'm going to go back up to holy in a minute because that's not what you're putting on. That's what you become. Put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against him, and against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so so also do you. And above all, this last one, verse 14. Above all these things, put on charity. Okay, so let's talk about these things, this list. He said, what, do you, what you should put on? First is bowels of mercies. What is bowels of mercies? What does that mean? It's an interesting expression that really refers to an emotion that begins in your bowels. In your, you know how sometimes, like, inside you, you just, you, you nod up, whether it's fear or excitement or something, but it knots up inside your your your, your abdomen, right? and it's, that it grows up there and it comes out in your in, in your behavior in your act. Uh, another way to think about this would be a heart of compassion. That's your first blank. I think is there. the word compassion is the same thing as bowels of mercies. Basically, bowels of mercies is this: it's a tenderness, a feeling for another. It's like my bowels of mercy is I care. I desire so much that you know everything you need to know to please God. That's the desire that we should all have. It's also a place where the love of Christ for each of you is found in Him. And where Paul expressed his love for the church. He said to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you. He longed after them all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ has bowels. As a human being, he's just like everybody else. He had a, a, a gut desire to save the world. That's what he's talking about, that bowels of mercy. But then he also tells us, not only bowels of mercy, you need to put on kindness. Now, that's a, the, the, the idea of kindness is this. It's a sweetness of character. Char- kindness is a sweetness of character that offers sympathy and confidence. It also has a result of mellowing out that which has been harsh and hard. That would be your next blank, the word mellowing out. Mellowing. So so you can be harsh and hard and difficult, or you can be kind and mellow yourself out. That, that's the idea of kindness, is to mellow yourself out. Philippians chapter 2. Oh, let's not get to that in a minute. Because the next one is humbleness of mind. They kind of go together. All of these kind of go together. Humbleness of mind. That comes from the same Greek word as, was, as what Paul said in Philippians 2.3. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. 
let each esteem other better than himself. So the idea of humbleness of mind basically is be, hum- be humble, humility. Um, and then he said, put on meekness. And that's an inward grace. Meekness is inward grace of the soul which they, with a calmness to God and to others. So you, so you no, so kindness and meekness go really hand in hand. You're, you're kind, you're, you're sweetness, you offer sympathy of, and confidence and so on. But in meekness, you're calm toward people. You have a calmness toward people. You know, some people, some people just, you, know, you watch a lot of videos and you see all these crazy things, people yelling at each other, screaming at each other. It's like, just mellow out. If you would just mellow out, things would be a whole lot better. We could actually have a conversation if you would mellow out. So mellow out, kindness, humbleness of, 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 uh, of mind, bowels of mercy, all of those things. See, this, how do you interact with another human being is guided in this, in this passage here. One more, uh, long-suffering. Now, we generally think about the word long-suffering as a word, as a substitute for patience. And, and there's, there's, there's some truth in that, substitute for patient. But more specifically, the word long-suffering means the quality of a person who is able to avenge himself, yet refrains from that vengeance. Long-suffering, basically, is not just being patient with the person that's taxing your, your, your patience. It means to not let your patience wear so thin that now you're going to seek revenge. Or you're going to take, you're going to, you're going to, you know, um, how would I say it? You, instead of like trying to respond like like in like kind, you respond in in a, a attitude that doesn't apply. Um, you re, you refrain from taking action against a person, even trying to match their action. That's long. So you think about it. long suffering, meekness, humbleness, kindness, bowels of mercy, all those things. How do you how do you interact with people? You know, you think about some of these protests and some of the things that are going on. If people would just interact like this, if they would just interact like this, there wouldn't be so much violence in the streets of whatever city or country or, or state or whatever. I mean, that's what we need to communicate to the world. This is how you should live. Live like this. Be this kind of person. Be kind. Be meek. Be long-suffering. It's, it's just a violence and reaction and, uh, and uh, revenge is the motivation for almost everything that goes on in the world today. It's terrible. Okay, so anyway, that's, that's what Paul says. Put on these things. Put on these things. Become these things. And then he says in verse 13... We've kind of talked about this a little bit last week. But forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave, so also do ye. So forgiving people. Forbearing, as I remember I told you last week, means to hold up one from falling. Forbear, to hold them up. This is an expression of the love of Christ flowing through us. Ephesians 4.2 says this. With all lowliness and meekness. See, there's those words. Lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. When you when you treat person a person like these characteristics that we're putting on, then what you're actually doing is you're, for, you're, for, you're forbearing them. You're, you're lifting them. You're holding them up. You're anchoring them. And 
in a, in a good way. Another word that speaks similarly is long-suffering, which means to refrain. This is another word, forbearing. It's the same thing as long-suffering in general. It means to refrain before taking action, to forbear, to refrain before taking action. And then he says to forgive. Forgiving is an outward expression of forbearing one another. It's what God did to us through Christ. God forgave us while Christ forbear us. He held us up till we could seek forgiveness and we received his gift through Christ. The other, the idea of forbearing and forgiving one another indicates just how inclusive this towards this is towards everybody. So there's this, this idea that put on these things, put on the bowels uh, of mercies and, and lowliness and humbleness and, and kindness and meekness. Put all of those on so that you can forbear somebody else so they can become forgiven by God. And then in verse 14, he uses another expression. He says, And above all these things, put on charity. Put on charity, which is what? The bond of perfectness. Now Paul says, above all these seven articles, we just went through seven things, articles of Christianity, put on charity, which is the bond of peace. And we'll look at all of them. Well, we've already looked at them, so we don't need to go back. But anyway, a bond has several definitions. And just kind of think about the word bond. First, it represents that which is bound together. Two things or more can be bound together. And the second thing that usually secures the fullness and the harmony of the Christian character and people in society. The bond of peace secures the fullness and harmony of the Christian character in people and in society. So we have to recognize that we can do this. So let me summarize this, this, this idea with a couple of statements. I put these in your notes so, so you have them. If love is lacking, all other good is nothing. It just dissolves. If love is lacking, if you lack love for another person, no matter how good you are, it just kind of fades away and dissolves. The second statement is this. The man without love is, in effect, the man whose very virtues are selfish unto himself. So if you you don't love somebody else, your focus is you. Your focus isn't on the person that you love. I think we would all agree with that, right? We all love love people, and we know that people love us, and so we, we understand the, the ebb and flow of love. But if you had no love in you, there's no ebbing and flowing. You, you just like, get out of my face. You may not say that, but your life says that. So the man without love is, in effect, the man whose very virtues are selfishness unto himself. Then we'll go on to verse 15 and 16. I want to wrap this, this little section up. That's interesting. There are two verses here. These verses 15 and 16 are probably the most important verses in this in this whole thing. Even though this is not the key, the key verse for the study, the study is on the knowledge of God. But these two verses, verses 15 and 16, are probably the most important verses that show us how we are to live our life as a believer. Now, just look at what he says in verse. First, verses 15 and 16 basically start with the same. Let. Verse 15, let your the peace of God rule in your heart. We'll come back to that in a minute. To which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So two things there. First, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Talk about rule here in just a moment. And secondly, let the word of God dwell in your life. 
two things that we should do to change who we are and maybe even change the world a little bit. There's two, basically, there's two sets of instructions, verse 15 and verse 16. So verse 15, we're instructed to let the peace of God rule. But here in Colossians, Paul has a different thought of mind about typically what we, the idea that we think about ruling. We think about like a monarch, a king, somebody ruling over us and, and issuing commands and orders and stuff. We think about ruling like that. This is an interesting word that Paul is using. Um, it, it is that, but it's different. It's different in this way. Paul's not encouraging us to have a personal peace in our heart or even a peace with God as he wrote in, verse, in Romans 5. What he's talking about here is, is uh, to, the word rule here is the word, the Greek word, uh, where did I put that word? Brabiso, which you don't know what that means. And, but basically what that word, that, we get the word, the English word arbitrate from this, the Greek word that says rule. It's the only time this word is used this way in the whole Bible. The word rule is used many times, but in this case, it's the only time it's translated in the, in, from this Greek word to arbitrate. The meaning of this word basically is like an athletic umpire. What? Think about an umpire. The umpire, what does the umpire do? He arbitrates between two teams who are trying to hurt each other. He's arbitrating. He's stopping. He, he, he knows the rules. He knows what the, the, the game is supposed to be. If you step outside it, he's going to stop you. He's going to you know, throw a flag, call a penalty, you know, uh, throw, pull a card if you're playing soccer. I don't know. There's all kinds of ways that they indicate you're out of line. And Paul says, let the peace of God be your arbitrator for the world that you're in. Let the world be our... Let, so you're you're on one side, the world is in your conflict. Let the peace of God, let the peace be your arbitrator. That's basically what Paul is talking about. Not rule over you and give you commands to regulate your response to what's happening to you. That's what Paul's talking about, to, to rule, let the peace of God rule. So if you put on the armor or put on all of these things that Paul talked about in verse um, 12, 13, 14. You put it all on, now you're able to let the peace of God arbitrate because now you have something that is covering you in the same way that Paul is talking about. The meaning of this word is really, it's like an athletic umpire ruling unbiasedly. I'm not sure if I say that word right. Basically, there's no bias. There shouldn't be. And I know that there's some people that accuse the umpire. They're just throwing flags for the other team or whatever they say. We, you know, we all say that the umpires he, he's not calling the, he, he's not uh, calling the strike zone like he should. He's not whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter what they are. He didn't. He's not. He didn't see that penalty, and he just walked away. I mean, we we hate the umpires. Probably, I would never want to be an umpire. My grandson thinks he's going to be an umpire soon for soccer, youth soccer league. Pray for him. <laughs> anyway. Um, I hope he does good. I'm sure he will. But anyway, let me get back to this. Okay, so the, the truth is the umpire, the peace, and that peace calls, your, calls the shots. And the power of this ruling of peace is seen throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. Jesus Christ, in John chapter 14, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. I give unto you, not as the world gaveth, 
give I unto you. Let your heart not let your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Let it be surrounded by the peace that I'm trying to give you. And just as an example of that peace would be Stephen in the book of in the book of Acts when Stephen was preaching. And, and all that said in council, looking steadfast on him, saw, saw in his face as it had been seen, the face of an angel. When Peter was preaching, and they were about to kill Peter, he's preaching, they see in his face what we should be putting on. The same kind of concept. That, that, was, that was Stephen. Okay, so in verse 16 is the second instruction to let the Word of God, and I use the word, I use this expression, envelop you. Let the Word of God envelop you. Let the, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. So, okay, so I say envelop. Just kind of over, overtake you, encompass you, surround you. So we are, to live in our, we are to live our life in the Word. I know that's kind of what we think when we say, when we think about uh, dwelling in the Word, we typically think, well, that means I should just read and read and read and read and read. Read constantly. I try to read ten chapters a day. Because that's what it means to dwell in the Word, right? That's, but that's that's such a minor part of what Paul's talking about. Yeah, we're to, we're we are to read the Bible, but this is what he really means. He gives us a list of what he means to let the Word of God dwell in our life. Notice that he says in verse sixteen, after he says, uh, "Let the Word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord." So what is he talking about? Well, first off, you, you, what really Paul means is to be found in this list. So wisdom. We all need to develop the wisdom that we need to have to live in this world that, God, that comes from the Word of God. So when you're reading every day, you should be extracting, mining the wisdom of God, especially if something like the book of Psalms or Proverbs, which is just filled with wisdom. It's called a wisdom book. Uh, so wisdom, the skill in the affairs of life. That's what wisdom is, skills in the affairs of life. You want to learn how to have skills in the affairs of life? Get, get in the Word and learn it. But this is what you do. Learn how to handle the Word. And by that I mean know how to properly apply the Word. See, gaining proper understanding and insight is in the use of the Word. That's, that's the wisdom. That's, we need to know how to apply it, how to share it, how to... How to let it function in our life. Secondly, he says to teach. In all wisdom and teaching. And then, I was thinking about that. This is an incredibly thing, interesting thing. Teaching is to instruct, to guide, to give knowledge to another person. Right? So we know when we teach, we're instructing, we're guiding. Uh, how do you know how to change the oil in your car? Well, my dad taught me. The expression of teaching, right? Teaching. Uh, so we should all find a way to place ourselves in a teaching position. Every one of us should find our way, find a way to place ourselves in a teaching position. And I was actually, I'm going to use Julie as an example. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. But um, she was talking this morning about her, her reading. And she was sharing what she got, what she got out of that, out of that uh, uh, passage of Scripture. And um, I was standing here listening to her, and I'm thinking, she's teaching She's telling me what she got from the Word of God, and she's teaching. It's that simple. I'm not talking about coming up here and standing here. Oh, if you want to do that, you know, let me know. I'll be glad to step aside. Uh, I'm not talking about you know taking Brian's place. I'm not talking about teaching in HBI, although those are all valid places. 
And a lot of times we point at uh, E-Wing, go teach in the, in the children's ministry. Okay, well, that's a good place to teach. But she was teaching too. She found a way to teach what she had been given by God. And she shared that with me. And I'm, I mean, my mind is on my message, but at the same time, I'm thinking, this is really good. This is really good. This is a good little lesson. And she's, I mean, it was like three minutes standing at the kitchen table. And that's teaching. Find a place. Find a way to teach the Bible. In any situation, you, everybody can teach. You don't have to teach deep doctrine. You don't have to teach a hundred, an hour-long message. You don't have to do any of that. You just need to be teaching. You can disciple. That's a good thing to, to do is disciple people. You can get discipled as a, as a stepping stone to being ready to disciple somebody. Um, you can prepare and deliver messages, of course. I mean, there's a lot of places where we can do that. If that's where if God has put that burden on your heart that you want to... I, I think I can preach better than Brian. Let's, let's see it. I mean, praise the Lord. I think Brian would love... Not, I mean, I know this. You know, kind of sounds like an arrogance, but it's really not. Sometimes you think I, I can do that. I want to do that. God is burdening your heart. To say, I want to do that. Let, okay, let's do it. And then He says to admonish, and wisdom teaching and admonishing. Now, this is an interesting word. This is the Greek word noothelo, which means to counsel. There's there's a whole study on. The idea of taking what the Bible teaches you and using that to counsel somebody. So let me tell you counseling. To Counseling is this. And I, I, I use this word, it's kind of, kind of harsh, but it really isn't. To confront another out of concern, to help them see and learn and apply the Word of God, settle, settling into their life and how to function in relationships and find the peace of God that we talked about in verse 15. Every one of us, should be able to counsel. You come along beside somebody, very simply, and say, what's going on? I, I understand you got this happening. You know, And just share what God is telling you about that. Or if you really want to step it up a notch, get involved in the uh, uh, wounded spirits ministry. Counsel people that have PTSD or other things. Or go to, go to life issues and counsel there with people that have um, uh, addiction problems. That's, that's counseling. The word admonish. God is telling us we should be able to counsel at some level, someplace. Maybe not up here like, you know, like Pastor Brian where people come in and say, uh, my, my, my spouse hates me. We're having a divorce. What should we do? That kind of counseling all the way down to, I'm trying to decide if I should go to HPI. What should I do? Counsel. That's counsel. Somebody's saying, counsel me. What should I do? What class should I be in? What 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 should I do? D one? Did I do two? So on and so forth. That's all counseling. We should be able to counsel people. Literally, I believe as well as the pastors in this church believe that everyone can learn to teach, to counsel, and to apply wisdom in a proper way. There's not a person here that excludes that. You want to learn? That's what we're here for to help you gain that ability. And it's for this reason that we have D two. And D2 and D1 and Wednesday night Bible study and, and HBI and so on. So all you need to do is let the peace of God rule in the world in, and the Word of God dwell in you, and you can be right where God wants you to be. So let's let's finish up here next week. We still haven't finished chapter three. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot going on in, in the remaining few verses here. 
Uh, and so this is very practical, but it's still very applicational uh, for us relationship-wise with other people. So we'll look at that. There's four relationships that everybody experiences at some point in their walk. Four relationships, and we're going to talk about those. We're going to apply everything that we've learned. How do we deal with those relationships? It's interesting how Paul writes. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's you've got to you've got to take the doctrine that's out of, you know, in a half a verse, and then see it applied four verses later in a in a real situation, and and. So that's kind of why it does take a little bit of time to get through this. That's why we spend a lot of time in the in study. Okay, so we're, we're, we're at the end of our day and our time. So let's pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for this passage of scripture and for the things that you taught us, Lord. Help us to let the peace of God rule in our hearts and help us to let the word of God dwell in our lives uh, so that we might be able to teach and admonish uh, and share wisdom, uh, whether it's in 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 songs or hymns or, or anything, Lord, just uh, just help us to be able to accomplish that. Help us to reflect the new man in our life that the world would be changed by us. And we just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Jamie.